The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. If you would please open up to 1 Peter, we'll be in chapter 1. It's page 1014 in the Red Bible, page 1315 in the Children's Bible. Now, if you're here uh, and you're planning on sticking with us for a little while, I'd like to give you a homework assignment this week. And your homework assignment is to consider how you suffer. What areas in your life are you suffering? Now, many times when we talk about this in our community group or in other Christian circles, we so often go to that place where we say, well, compared to other people, I don't suffer so bad. You know, I'm not starving like people in Africa. I'm not being killed like people in the Middle East. I'm doing okay. But this message, this series is for us here, not for them there because they're not listening. And so I want you to think through in what areas of your life do you suffer? It could be physical. Your outer self is wasting away and it is painful. Your suffering could be financial. Money is not coming in like you hoped that it would. Your suffering could be relational, either have strained relationships or the loss of relationships or lack of relationships. Or your suffering could be emotional. Maybe you struggle with depression or anxiety or a whole host of other things. So you see, there are many ways that we suffer. And so how do you suffer? For some of you, I'm guessing you know it just like that. For others... You have to go home and think through it. And so I want you this week to think through what are the ways that I suffer? And I don't want you to think of this so that you can form a grumbling heart because we should be filled with thanksgiving. But the reason I want to give you this assignment to think through the ways that you suffer is so that as we study through first Peter, we can apply it to the suffering in our life and we can apply the gospel to the suffering in our life. So that then we might minister to others that suffer as well. And so that's your homework. Think through what are areas in your life that you suffer. And then let 1 Peter address it as we walk through this semester. So let's read together the first five verses of 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter 1, verse 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion of Pontius Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Lord, as we embark on this journey studying First Peter, We confess that there is suffering in our life that we don't know what to do with. Suffering in our life that makes our hearts grow bitter and angry. 
There's suffering in our life where we think nobody else understands. Nobody else can relate. And yet, Lord, we know that you understand suffering even more than we do. And that you can speak into suffering because you have suffered on our behalf. And so, Lord, as we look and dive into this first part of Peter, God, pray that you would establish in us a hope in the midst of suffering. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my goal today is simply to introduce you to the book of First Peter, to the letter of First Peter. And really, there are three main characters that we're going to cover. The first is the author. We're going to look at the author's authority. Secondly, we're going to look at the recipients and their reality. And then third, we're going to look at God and his generosity. So we're going to look at those three main characters in these first five verses of First Peter. First, let's look at the author's authority. The letter starts like this. Peter. It's a good place to stop. Who is Peter? Who is this guy writing to these churches? We were first introduced to Peter in Matthew chapter 4. We read that while Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, the one who wrote this letter, and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. Peter was a very passionate guy. I imagine him to be very black and white in his thinking, and he was either all in or all out. And so when Jesus says, follow me, Peter leaves everything and goes and follows Jesus. Peter was one of the 12 apostles who was taught by Jesus for three years. They were in Jesus' seminary. Peter was also in Jesus' inner circle, his core three of Peter, James, and John, who he took up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was the first one to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. After Christ's resurrection, Peter was a great leader in the early church. He preached at Pentecost. He authored first and second Peter, but also probably the first writing of the New Testament, time-wise, which is the Gospel of Mark. And so Peter was a pretty important figure within the church. That's who Peter is. Now, more important question, why should we listen to Peter? Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter starts by listing out his credentials to you, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter starts here because credentials are very important in order for us to submit ourselves to another person, to their teaching, to their work, to whatever it might be. For example, imagine you had to have open heart surgery. And you went to the doctor for your pre-op appointment. And you asked the doctor, where did you graduate from? What med school? And he laughs at you. Ha! Med school? I don't need no stinking med school. What are you going to do? You're going to run for the hills if you're smart. Because he has no credentials, right? You're not going to let him toy around in here. This isn't where he's going to learn, right? You want him to learn at school. You want him to come with credentials. Peter comes with his credentials. He says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so what is an apostle? An apostle is someone that Jesus Christ has instructed and commissioned 
and given authority to, to bring forth the gospel. The 12 disciples were called apostles first in Matthew 10 when Jesus sent them out on a short-term mission trip. We also see that Peter talks about later in this chapter that he was an eyewitness to the suffering of Christ. Peter was commissioned by Christ to go and minister, but Peter was also recommissioned by Christ to minister. It's a very interesting story. Many of you may be familiar with it, but after the Passover meal in Matthew 26, Jesus says to the disciples, he says, you will all fall away from me because as it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter confidently responds to Christ saying, Though they all fall away. I love how he throws their disciples under the bus. Though they all fall away. I will never fail you. I will never fall away. And then, of course, you know the story. Less than 24 hours, he denies Christ three times. And so when Christ is raised from the dead, Jesus comes to the Sea of Tiberias. And after Jesus cooks them breakfast... Jesus graciously pulls Peter aside to restore him, to recommission him for his ministry. In John 21, 15, we read, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says something that I think is fascinating. Jesus doesn't say, I forgive you, or I know you love me. Jesus says to him, Feed my lambs. If you know the story, Christ repeats that three more times. Again, asking him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And again, Peter confesses, yes, you know, I do. And Jesus responds, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus is restoring Peter, recommissioning Peter to minister to the church, to be an under shepherd of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what Peter is doing in this letter. He's ministering to the church. He's ministering to us today as one commissioned by Jesus Christ. Now, Peter doesn't only have authority when it comes to who Jesus is and his teachings. Peter also has authority when it comes to suffering. Right after Jesus says this great thing about feed my lambs, tend my sheep, Feed my sheep. Jesus goes on to say to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hand and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter was martyred for his death. Tradition says that he was set to be crucified. He thought himself unworthy to die in the same way of his Savior, so he pleaded and was granted the request to be crucified upside down. But Peter knew what it was to suffer. And so he comes not only as an authority on Jesus Christ, but also an authority on suffering. In this letter, Peter is going to speak to us about the Trinitarian God, about suffering, about salvation. And the question is, Do you believe that Peter is just a fisherman or do you believe that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ commissioned by the Lord himself to tend his sheep? Do you take his word as God's word? Because if you do, 
if you believe this to be an authority, God's word to be an authority, then we must unreservedly submit our understanding to his understanding. And so this is who Peter is. He's a fisherman, but he comes with great authority, both on who Jesus is and on suffering. Now let's look at the recipients. Let's look at the recipient's reality. Verse 1 again, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You can see here on the map that Peter was probably writing from Rome. He calls it Babylon. That's in the top left-hand corner. And he's writing to these regions in Asia Minor. You can see them listed there and circled in red. And he's writing to these people that are a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles and are suffering persecution. They are probably not yet suffering Roman government instituted persecution in which Christians are dying, but they're suffering the negative stigma of being a Christian. Maybe they're being dismissed by family members who say, where's your God in that? Maybe they're being avoided by their neighbors or passed over for jobs, whatever it might be. They were suffering because they were Christians. But they were also suffering just simply because they were humans. They too had to suffer the consequences of their outer bodies wasting away. They too had to suffer from broken relationships, hostile relationships. They were a church that was hurting and was suffering and wondering, where is God in all this? Now, if you noticed, Peter calls the recipients of this letter exiles. Could also be translated sojourner or wanderer. Someone who is outside their home territory in a foreign country. And what Peter is doing here is he's not talking to a people who have been physically displaced from one country to another. He is reminding them at the very onset of this letter... That as Israel wandered and were sojourners in the wilderness for 40 years until they reached the promised land, that they too are sojourners on this earth. And the promised land is yet to come in heaven for all eternity. Peter is reminding these suffering saints that this world is not their home. It is not their final destination. That they are but sojourners passing through the wilderness, but destined For the promised land of heaven, where there will be no more persecution, there will be no more suffering, and there will be no more pain. When I was in middle school, my family took a trip to Europe. And wherever we went, it was a little bit odd, a little bit unnerving for me as a junior high kid. We went to these different countries, and every country we went to, they spoke a different language, and sometimes they spoke broken English. Many times we were trying to talk to them with hand signals, you know, like where's the church or where's the grocery store, you know, hold up signs and have them point. They also had strange customs. Like in Greece, I remember looking out our hotel window and these men gather in the morning to start these arguments. And then they leave and they come back throughout the day. And there's this huge crowd of men rubbing these worry beads and arguing in the square. And it's just what they do for entertainment. At one restaurant I went to, we ordered food. We didn't know what it was because we couldn't read the language. I ordered cow intestines. It was disgusting. I don't know why anybody would order that. I took one bite. 
Gave it to my dad. He ate it all. That was good. It's what dads are for, right? Even the hotels were strange. The, the hotels, you had to share a bathroom with everyone on your floor. It was just, we were in a different place. It was not a place that we belonged. And it was great to come back home where things were familiar, where things are safe, where things are good. You know, whether you are a citizen of the United States, a resident of Wisconsin, you are exiles on this earth. You are sojourners on this earth. You speak a language different from this world. You use words like sin and forgiveness and redemption. You have a different worldview that Jesus calls all the shots, that the Bible is our ultimate authority. You have a different value and passions to know Christ and to make him known. We are sojourners, wanderers on this earth, destined for the promised land of heaven. This is what Peter is reminding the suffering saints in Asia Minor. And this is what he's reminding the suffering saints today, that this life is but a vapor, but you are destined for a promised land that is far greater. And so we see the author's authority, the recipient's reality that they're suffering sojourners, longing for the promised land. And finally, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of the time, let's look at God's generosity. Verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love how in this letter focused on suffering and salvation, Peter starts with praise. He wants to bless God in the midst of suffering. And the question is, why is he blessing God? Why is he praising God? Why is he worshiping God? And as we look at this passage, we see it's because of a Trinitarian salvation. In other words, that God is a unified team between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working together to accomplish and to carry out and to fulfill the salvation of the saints. And so I want to just look through these three members of the Trinity and what we see in this passage as to how these members of the Trinity have a role in our salvation. And so first I want to look at God the Father. Choosing us for the salvation of our souls. This is the part of the Trinity. The Father is the, is the person of the Trinity that Peter most focuses on. So this one is a little bit longer, a little bit more complicated. But we see three ways that the Father is working in our salvation. The first is that he has elected us according to his foreknowledge. If you look in verses 1 through 2, Peter addresses the saints as elect exiles. Elect Exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, the word elect simply means to pick out or to choose. As we elect a president, we choose a president, we cast a vote. But when it is God, as we are chosen by God for salvation through Jesus Christ, and God does this according to his foreknowledge. Now, this word foreknowledge in the Greek is a combination of a preface and a common word. The preface is the word pro, which means prior, okay? But also combined with the word gnosis, which means to know. And this word gnosis can have many different meanings. It can mean to just simply intellectually know something. But it can also mean something far deeper and far more intimate. For example, if you look back in Genesis chapter 4, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and bore Cain. 
Adam's knowing of Eve in this passage was not simply an intellectual understanding. It was a relational, loving intimacy. And so what we learn here in this passage is that God foreknows us. And is it simply that God knows the future and knows what we will do? Well, you see, when God knows the future, that means he has also ordained that it would happen. For example, if God knows that it's going to rain at 6 o'clock today, God ordains it and makes it happen that it would rain at 6 o'clock today. But I think it means far more than that. I think it's saying that we are foreloved by God, that God loved us before we were even conceived. Now, I know this doctrine of election stirs up a lot of questions for people, and I don't have time to go deep into it today. There are other sermons that I've done that that do go deeper. I'd be happy to refer that to you. But I just want to say that when you look at the New Testament, the New Testament writers teach about election. They praise God for election. They even just simply assume that everyone believes election to be true. In Acts 13, we read that when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. You know, not only do the New Testament writers have no issue with this doctrine of predestination, they also have no issue with the doctrine of of free will. Time and again, we are told to repent and believe. Matter of fact, Peter was one of the champions of that phrase throughout Acts, and now he's writing about God's election in 1 Peter. And as you look at these two doctrines, predestination and free will, side by side, there's this glorious mystery in which both are completely true. But if you believe in predestination alone, you will become passive. And if you believe in free will alone, you'll become anxious. But if you believe that both are completely true as regarded by the word of God, you will have both a purpose and a peace. And so what we see here is God the Father elected us according to his foreloving us. Secondly, the Father rebirthed us according to his mercy. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're not saved by walking down an aisle or by being baptized, nor are we saved by our goodness or our moral worthiness. We are saved by being born again by the Holy Spirit, according to the mercy of God the Father. Do you remember that passage in John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, that great teacher, that very religious man? And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, our political analysts have made this kind of confusing. They have this category of born-again Christians. Have you ever heard that? What do the born-again Christians think? As if there is a type of Christian that is not born again. According to Jesus, in order to be a Christian, you must be born again. And the church is filled of those who have been born again. Those who were dead but have been made alive in the Spirit. Jesus goes on in John 3 and says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And so let me ask you this question. Are you born again? Do you ask that question of yourself? Do you say, 
I wonder if I'm born again. I wonder if God has saved me. Well, Paul here, or excuse me, Peter here says, born again to a living hope. We know that we are born again if our hope is living, if it is active. You know, if I came to you and I said, are you, have you been born? Just born. You'd say, of course I've been born. I'd say, how do you know you've been born? You wouldn't race to find your birth certificate or go interview the hospital. You'd say, I'm alive. I'm breathing. I'm moving. I'm growing. I'm changing. Things are happening. I'm still moving. I know I'm alive. In the same way, Peter's saying, you know, if you have been born again, if you have been born to a living hope, if it is active, if it's not stale, if it's moving you, changing you, transforming you, are things changing in your life? Are you growing into the image of Jesus, however slowly it might be? Is God confronting your sin and leading you in freedom? You know, I was visiting with a friend not too long ago who loves the Lord. And he was just overcome with despair because of his sin. And he said, you know, sometimes I wonder if I'm saved because there's a lot of people that are a whole lot more holy than I am. And so I asked him, I said, Joe, it's not his name, but I said, Joe, what would you be like if you weren't a Christian? And he said, oh, I would be so different. I mean, I would not have hope. I would be in despair all the time. I I would be struggling with this sin a lot more and that sin a lot more. You see, what I was asking him is if his hope was living, if it was active, it was changing him and transforming him. Sure, you may not be good as the next person. But the question is, is God changing you and transforming you? Is he warming your affection for him? Jesus says you must be born again. If you're here today and you're not born again, there's good news. You can cry out to God for mercy. God has never turned anyone away who has come authentically and cried out for mercy. God wants to save you and deliver you and give you new life. As we continue on, we see the father also guards us according to his power. Verse four says to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept. That word means reserved or guarded in heaven for you. And then he repeats that. He says, who by God's power, that's the power of God, not the power of me or the power of you, are being guarded. It's a picture of a military base being guarded by military platoon through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, some of you have heard the phrase perseverance of the saints, that once we are saved, we will persevere to the end until we reach heaven. But a more accurate statement would be the perseverance of God. Because there are many times we cannot persevere. But God perseveres on our behalf. Just as as it is impossible to save ourselves, it is impossible for us to keep ourselves, to keep our salvation. We are constantly dependent on the grace of God to carry us, to keep us, to guard our salvation. And here Peter is reminding the suffering saints that your salvation is secure, that heaven is yours, that you can be confident in this. This is a major emphasis of First Peter, that if you have been born again, 
Your salvation is certain and it's secure, not by your power, but by the power of God. So let's review. What is the role of God the Father? And that's the the biggest portion. He elected us according to his foreknowledge. He rebirthed us according to his mercy. And he guards us according to his power. You know, back in 2001, Trish and I got married. And we had our first child, Corbin, in 2007. And those were six long years between when we got married and when we had our first child because we wanted to have a child, but we knew that it just wasn't the right time. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a future. And we thought, let's get some things in order before we have kids. But we longed to have kids. And we already loved them before they were ever born or ever conceived. And when God graciously gave us children, we adored them and we would do anything to protect them. You know, I could say for any of my kids, I would gladly give my life for them, to guard them. And I think almost any parent here would do the same. And yet if we who are sinful fathers love our children, how much more does our Heavenly Father love us? Who has caused us to be born again? Who has foreloved us? Who is guarding us in our salvation? And so we see the work of the Father in our salvation Choosing us for salvation of our souls. Secondly, God the Holy Spirit sanctifying us for obedience to Jesus Christ. Verse 2. In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. This word sanctification means a purification. And this purification happens both instantaneously but also progressively throughout the life of a believer. And I think here Peter is referring to both. He's talking about the initial change in which the Holy Spirit draws us to God, transforms our heart, rebirths us, and gives us new life. In that John chapter 3 passage where Jesus is talking about new birth, he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The initial work of the Holy Spirit is to draw us to God, to bring us to salvation. Maybe you're here today because you're thinking about God, because you're wondering about God, because you are, you're longing for God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit drawing you to God. Now, the Holy Spirit doesn't stop his work when we come to faith in Christ, but it continues throughout the life of a believer to grow us and conform us into the image of Jesus, or as it says here, to be obedient to Jesus, even in the midst of suffering, to be obedient to Jesus, who is both our Lord and our King. Galatians 5.16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You see, the Holy Spirit not only reveals sin in our life and convicts us of sin in our life, but it gives us the power to conquer sin in our life. It's impossible apart from the Spirit. But the Spirit is sanctifying us, purifying us. So God the Holy Spirit sanctifying us for obedience to Jesus Christ. And finally, God the Son cleansing us for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 2 says, For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What does it mean that we were chosen by God for the sprinkling with Jesus' blood? You know, this may be a term that you have become commonplace to, but it's actually pretty unappetizing to think about it, isn't it? Have you ever been sprinkled with blood? It doesn't seem like something that's very attractive, does it? 
In the Old Testament, there are three times in which people are sprinkled with blood. And I think Peter is actually referring to all three of these. And, and, and he's drawing his readers to re- recall those things that happen in the Old Testament, in which people are sprinkled with blood. The first is in Exodus 24. Israel is sprinkled with blood to ratify the Mosaic covenant. In the same way, the new covenant is ratified, but not with the sprinkling of bulls or goats, but with the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. The second, second time people are sprinkled in the Old Testament with blood is when the, 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 the sons of Aaron are ordained as priests. In 1 Peter 2.9 Peter says to the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ is a commissioning to us to go and share the good news of Christ, even in the midst of a suffering world. And the third time people are sprinkled with blood in the Old Testament, which I think is most applicable to us today. It was for a ceremonial cleaning of a person that was put outside the camp because they were unclean. It was a ceremonial cleaning of a leper who had been healed, who had been cured. You see, the leper would be excluded from the people and the community and they would live on their own and they would be far and distant from God. But in Leviticus 14, they would be sprinkled with blood and welcomed back into community, welcomed back into fellowship and intimacy with God. Here, as Peter talks about us being sprinkled with the blood of Christ, he's not talking about a physical ceremonial defilement that's caused by leprosy, but a spiritual defilement that's caused by our continual sin. Although we are to live for obedience to Jesus Christ, so often we live in obedience to our sinful flesh. And just as they were sprinkled with blood in the Old Testament and declared clean, we're sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Our sins are washed away because he died on our behalf. He shed the blood we should shed and he has washed us whiter than snow. And so the Father choosing us for salvation of our souls, the Holy Spirit sanctifying us for obedience to Jesus Christ and the Son cleansing us for the forgiveness of our sins. Some of you may, have may heard this story, but a few months ago, back in February or March, I, I was eating in Kavarna and <clears throat> I got sick. And uh, I, I think it's because I ate a salad. I'm not sure. The doctors say otherwise, but um, eating a salad sometimes isn't good for you. <laughs> and so I got sick and, and I actually passed out. And my friend called 911. And when I woke up from being passed out, I saw the sirens outside and the, the medics coming in and, and I vomited and, and then they were saying, are you okay? I said, I'm all right. I'm fine. You know, you can go back to wherever you were. Just relax. It's okay. And they said, all right, well, well, why don't you get up and, and go and you can drive home. And I said, oh, I can't get up. I'm way too sick for that. And so they said, all right, we should take you into the hospital. So they started doing checks on me. They put me on a stretcher, and there I'm being, being carried out of Kavarna, which is really strange. And so I'm put in an ambulance, and their driver's driving us there. The, the medics are in back checking on me, taking care of me. They take me to a hospital, and they take me into, the, into a room in the, in the emergency care. And the doctor there is taking care of me, giving me an IV, letting me sleep, bringing me water, checking on me constantly. And it's a very humbling experience if that's ever happened to you. One, because... You have nothing to offer at that point. 
You're purely a recipient of their services. But it's also very humbling because all of the energy and all of the attention of these people are focused on making you better. You know, as we think of the Trinitarian work of God, it should humble us to think that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has secured our salvation, is working out our salvation, and has guarded our salvation for all eternity. It should move us to humility and thanksgiving and praise that we, along with Peter, would say, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me end with this illustration. I'll try to make it as quick as possible. One of the things that we see throughout Peter that is an important theme is this theme of hope. And hope, the way we use it, is different than the way the Bible uses it. When we say we hope for something, it means we wish for it to come true. We're not sure if it will come true. Maybe it will come true, but we hope that it comes true. Like, for example, many of you probably thought, I hope the Packers beat the Seahawks, right? We hope it will happen. We're not sure it will happen, but that's what we're hoping for. But you see, when the Bible talks about hope, It talks about something that is not unsure, but that is sure. A destination that we know is to come. So let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, college football season kicked off. My favorite team is the Mizzou Tigers. I love them. I enjoy them. I cheer for them. And usually when I'm cheering for the team, there are highs and lows. And when they throw an interception, I'm like, oh, and I'm stressing out. You know, uh, sometimes I pay. Sometimes I start cleaning just because I need to get up and do something. But, but, you know, I'm in the game and I'm focused. I have the ups and downs of the games. Well, their first game of the year, I had a prior engagement I had to go to. So I got to watch a little bit of the first quarter, but then I left. And so the next day on Sunday afternoon, I watched a recap of the game or I watched the replay. And as I was watching the replay, they would throw an interception. I think, no big deal. They'd fumble the ball. That's okay. Why? Because I already knew what the score was going to be. I already knew the end of the game. I knew who was going to be victorious. You see, in this life, you will have ups and downs. But you know how it's going to end. You have a certain hope. You know who will be victorious. It will be our champion, Jesus Christ. And we know the glory that is waiting us. And so one of the encouragements that Peter is giving to us in the midst of suffering is although you have ups and downs in this life, you know the final score and you know that you are on the winning team if you are in Christ. And you know that you will enter into a place with no more suffering and no more pain. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our salvation. Thank you that it is secure in Christ. Thank you that as we go through the suffering of this life, the, the, the ups and downs of it, as we grieve and mourn over this suffering appropriately, Lord, that we know the final verdict, that we know the destination, that although this life is a vapor filled with trials, we head to eternity of heavenly bliss with you forever. And we praise you for that certain hope that we have in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.